Berkeley Yeast, creators of the bioengineered yeast Tropics, which makes beer with insanely potent passion fruit and guava notes. I actually brewed with Tropics after we talked about it on episode 188, and the next day the brewery smelled like a guava orchard. Now, Berkeley Yeast just released Thiol Boost, which is a liquid thiol precursor that will take it to another level. Mention this podcast to get 15% off your next order. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Let's go! 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 Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Sponsored by Fermentus. Whether you want a crisp, sweet, or fruity cider, discover the Saf Cider range. Every Saf Cider strain is certified ETU, so you can choose to pitch directly into the wort or proceed to rehydration. It makes no difference. It's up to you. We guarantee the same results. For the latest on their exciting new product releases and to learn how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to GusmerBeer.com which you're about to hear originally aired in May of 2019. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. We observed a, a couple of different key genome changes. So the um, one of them is that about 40% of the population gained an extra chromosome. This week on the show, genome sequencing of serial repitches. My name is Maitreya Dunham. I'm a professor at University of Washington in the Genome Sciences Department. And my name is Tom Schmidlin, and I'm owner and head brewer of Postdoc Brewing in Redmond, Washington. Just about everyone in the, in the brewing industry will recommend not repitching most yeast strains more than 10 times. There's really nothing magic about the number 10, but let's talk about why we want to limit the number of repitches. What's the math look like? So uh, one reason to limit the number of repitches is because eventually evolution is going to cause trouble for you. And that's because there are so many yeast cells in a fermenter, um, 10 to the 14th, which is one with 14 zeros after it, that there are lots of possibilities for mutations to happen. Um, and if a mutation happens that makes that particular yeast cell better at growing or surviving in the beer, then it's going to start to take over the fermenter. Tell us more about what those mutations might look like. 
Yeah, so the changes can be all sorts of really cool things. So that's one thing my lab focuses on, actually, is how the genome evolves. And we got interested in beer because it's such an interesting environment in which yeast can evolve. And the types of mutations are the same as, as any type of evolving system. There are individual spelling changes in the genome where you can change a single base pair. They are whole chromosome changes where you can come up with an extra chromosome or lose a chromosome. And you can also swap chromosome segments between each other. And these can have really profound consequences for the metabolism of the yeast strain. They can start making different quantities of different metabolites, or they can grow differently, or they can have different stress tolerances, in part because of these mutations. Okay. And just to be clear, because a lot of brewers misuse this term, generations and repitches are not the same thing. There are multiple generations within any given fermentation. Yeah, that's right. So we tried to look this up and it turns out the data are not super solid on how many cell divisions are occurring in each fermenter, um, but it seems to be on the order of about three population doublings in a fermentation. And so the repitch going to the next fermenter will include more cell divisions than, than just uh, the fermenters used. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that number's about right, especially for the um, the strain in question here that you did a lot of work with in, in giving kind of sort of normal fermentation conditions and and whatnot. But uh, but yeah, I think that that number probably varies a lot from one situation to another. Now, your lab studies m these mutations to learn about the evolution of yeast during serial repitching. Why is that important? So evolution is really just fundamentally interesting. It's this basic biological process. And so one of the things my lab wants to work on is how it happens and how mutations can affect traits of cells. Um, but it also has a lot of implications for both industrial applications like beer, but also, you know, a lot of biopharmaceutical products are made in fermenters these days by yeast. And so they have some of the same problems where, you know, you've built this nice pathway in yeast and it's making some small molecule for you, but evolution manages to screw it up for you <laughs> and you don't get the yields you want. Um, the other reasons to study evolution are because there are some big public health problems that are um, uh, where evolution is really important. So one of these uh, is antibiotic resistance, for example, like microbes evolving the capacity to be resistant to a drug that um, we need in order to fight those infections. And another one is cancer. So cancer cells are actually your own cells evolving to grow aberrantly in your body. And all of these processes, the fundamentals are the same. It's all mutation and growth and competition, um, but the specific types of environments that they're in can, can differ. And so that's one reason why we've been studying this both in the lab and also in the brewery is to try to understand how different environments matter. I've always thought that beer is going to somehow cure cancer, so you're giving me <laughs> more hope now. Okay. You've said that brewing strains are monsters with crazy <laughs> chromosomes. Explain what you mean by that to those of us who aren't geneticists. Sure. So um, if you think about your own genome, you know, you have uh, um, 23 chromosomes and you have two copies of each of those chromosomes. You got one from your mom and one from your dad, right? Um, however, and that's also true of most yeast strains. However, the beer strains have very interesting and crazy genomes. They don't just have two copies of each chromosome. They have um, sometimes three copies, sometimes five copies, most of the time four copies. Some chromosomes aren't 
entire chromosomes or partial chromosome fragments that have gotten hooked up to other regions of the genome. Um, so there are these really um, interesting genomes that are really different from what a normal yeast cell looks like. And so some of those changes in the genome are no doubt uh, responsible for some of the you know great traits that are already present in all of these neat brewing strains and i should say that that's not entirely true like some strains have are near to four copies of each chromosome but other strains are closer to two copies of each chromosome it depends on the the history of that particular strain so so take us to the beginning of this work uh how did you get started so I saw a poster for a talk that Tom was giving at University of Washington. He's an alum and had um, been uh, signed up to do a, a career seminar for what could you do with your awesome science degree. And um, <laughs> I, I think I emailed out of the blue to ask if you happened to be around to meet because we were just starting to do some some beer genomics work. And, uh, and we met and you told me about your cereal repitching. And I was like, please take samples for me oh my god that sounds amazing <laughs> am i remembering it correctly uh, you have a better memory than i do <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's let's hear about how this uh how this e experiment sort of came to life how did you how did you set this whole thing up um you know serial repitching is just something that we um we've always done um I, we've only been around for uh four years but from the beginning um you know we harvest our yeast and reuse it um and i've never been afraid to you know just keep going with it <laughs> i know that there's some rules of thumb in, in terms of you know how many generations uh you should go out in terms of repitching but um rules are meant to be broken right well, if it's still tasting good, um, I didn't see the reason to to throw it away. And um, speaking with some other people in the industry, I know, I you know, I'm not mentioning any names, but I know of at least two other breweries um, in the region uh, that go out far, far further than we do in terms of uh, the number of batches they'll they'll get out of a single pitch of yeast. Oh, Tom, you got to tell me what their names are so that I can go get samples from them, too. <laughs> I'll have to, uh, to get the permission before I do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what um, we wanted to do was start from the beginning. So we asked Tom and his crew to begin collecting samples for us the next time they started from a fresh batch of yeast. So they ordered a new um, batch of yeast from Y yeast and then um, collected a sample for us from that and from the um, prop up and then started collecting essentially every single time they used the yeast, they collected a sample for us. And so um, luckily one of Tom's folks lives pretty close to the university and so was able to uh, drive by yeast samples on a regular basis for us. And we accumulated them all in our freezer until he decided that the time series was over and as he said that was because the taste started um you know not being what he was looking for um so once we had all these samples in our freezer uh we chose a few of them from about every um five to ten repitches and we made DNA from the mixture and we used um, DNA sequencing to sequence the entire genome of the yeast and of the entire mixture. So what we have at most of these time points is a mixed population of a variety of things going on and we can watch as new mutations kind of increase in their frequency uh, throughout the time course. The important thing was that we had the the time zero, that first sample that we got from the yeast company so that we had something to compare it to so we could tell what was new and what pre-existed. 
Nice. So in your first experiment, you ended up re uh, ended up repitching Chico yeast 29 times. So that's something like more than 80 generations. Tell us what happened. What did you observe? Well, first of all, um, we observed a, a couple of different key genome changes. So the um, one of them is that about 40% of the population gained an extra chromosome. So yeast have 16 chromosomes and a, a portion of the culture now has four copies instead of three copies of chromosome five. So that was pretty easy to see. Um, and then the second one was a little bit more subtle. And so a, another 40%, and this is separate, they aren't the same clone. So one group of 40% of yeast have this extra chromosome, and then a different 40% of the final pitch of the yeast have a rearrangement where it doesn't change the number of chromosomes, but it changes essentially which copy they have. So if you think about the yeast as having, you know, two chromosome copies from yeast mom and yeast dad, uh, what's happened is that they started out with uh, three copies in this case from mom and one copy from dad which is a little weird but <laughs> go with me and now at the end they have two copies from mom and two copies from dad so that's a pretty subtle change but what we think is important about it is that there are there's a mutation carried on one of those chromosome arms that um, pre-existed in the strain and we think that this rearrangement is getting rid of it we, we don't yet know the flavor implications of that um, we're in the process of engineering um, an ale to carry just that mutation and no other mutations so that we can test it directly. And then the other types of changes we saw were um, not whole chromosomes or whole chromosome arms changing copies, but instead were more surgical mutations where just a single base pair might change. And we saw quite a lot of those. Only a few of them made it to relatively high frequency in the population. Um, one of those was in a gene called um, SKIP2, which interestingly regulates hydrogen sulfide production. So this was one of our potential culprits for um, any kind of off flavors that might have been developing. Although, again, we haven't uh, followed that up to prove it or not. Once you identify a mutation via sequencing, how do you then figure out the effect of that mutation? How do you determine, okay, this mutation affects flocculation or ethanol tolerance or VDK production or something else? Oh, that's like the million dollar question that is what all <laughs> all geneticists kind of obsess over these days. So it, it's it kind of uh, called the genotype to phenotype problem. If you know the genotype of something, um, how can you figure out like what, what changes it's going to make to the traits of the organism? And one great thing about working with yeast is that it's been studied, you know, like back to pasture, right? So there's a ton known about yeast. It was one of the first genomes sequenced and people have been working hard on it for decades. So a lot of the metabolism is really well understood. And so when we find a mutation in a gene, um, we can make some guesses about how it might affect the uh, physiology of the cell. But to prove it, what we really need to do is engineer that mutation and only that mutation into a strain and then compare it to a control strain that doesn't have that mutation. And then we know the only difference is this one change that we made, and then we can do the bake-off, right? We can have them uh, grow in different conditions, we can measure the metabolites that they create, and uh, see if we can figure out what difference does that mutation actually make. 
or was it just uh, there by random chance? So one thing that we found really interesting with these uh, the strains that had been repitched so so long is that they didn't just have one mutation; they often had several. So you know they would have the extra chromosome copy, but then in addition to that, they would have one of these uh, point mutations. And so sometimes there's some ambiguity there. Like we might see that the strain has a difference when we compare it against the initial strain, but we don't know yet which of the mutations causes it. And even to make things worse <laughs> for these whole chromosome changes, like there are hundreds of genes on chromosome five. So which one of those genes is the one responsible? Or maybe it's not just one gene. Maybe it's a combination of them. It makes things really complicated and really interesting. But it sounds like you're telling me you're in a pretty good uh, position to solve this riddle and, and figure this all out for the world, right? We're trying. <laughs> We've, you might have uh, heard about CRISPR. We've got a CRISPR experiment going right now, and one of the uh, starting with the the Chico strain to try to engineer some of these changes in and see. Because the other thing is that you know evolution of these strains doesn't necessarily have to be bad. It can also create strains that have interesting and good new properties. So, for example, these strains, when we grew them in high ethanol concentrations, so 7.5%, that um, kind of impaired the growth a little bit of the initial strain, but the um, repitched strains actually grew better in that condition. So, it could be that these strains are going to be useful because they're more tolerant of some of the brewing conditions in, in Tom's specific brewery. They haven't been, you know, kind of... Um, optimized for his specific brewery they've been collected for their general brewing characteristics so maybe we'll we'll evolve something cool that tom will want to use later yeah nice yeah you have to check out we did a episode uh last summer with uh, charles denby uh who uh, is you was using crisper to make hoppy beer without using oh hops, yeah so yeah, yeah a, i love that study yeah it's a pretty good one Coming up. And we've collected a, a whole bunch of different ones, and we're trying to kind of understand what happened in, in the past um, as these strains got passed around, and then also what happens in the future as they get repitched in individual breweries. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Brought to you by BSG. Want a natural and economical clarification aid that doesn't impact beer flavor? Then you need Cary Biofine Eco. Developed as part of Cary's Eco Brewing Range, BioFine Eco is a plant-based fining agent that improves beer clarification by instant flocculation of yeast and troop. Available exclusively from BSG, visit bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. 
positively impact your process, product, and profitability with actionable insights from BrewIQ, the industry-leading real-time fermentation monitoring solution. Visit www.precisionfermentation.com backslash MBAA to start saving time and money today. BSI, your brewing partner since 1996, is your destination for top quality liquid yeast cultures, lab services, and brewing products. BSI customizes your yeast orders for the perfect healthy pitch rate from a collection of over 300 strains. Most strains ship within seven days, but now try BSI's Express Yeast with industry favorite strains shipped the next business day. As of 2023, BSI is proud to be a 100% employee-owned business. Professional brewers can call for a free same-day consultation or visit brewingscience.com to access over 50 years of brewing expertise. Are you sure you're getting the best deal? Visit the Lupulin Exchange, where you can find every hop variety, every brand, and every vendor. Compare prices, reviews, shipping speeds, reliability, and more on over a million pounds shipping direct from every hop merchant and grower in the U.S. The Lupulin Exchange. One stop, all the hops. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District St. Paul, Minneapolis has a tour and happy hour at O'Shaughnessy Distilling, November 1st. District Philly's annual fall technical weekend is November 3rd and 4th. District Southern California meets November 4th at Tarantula Hill Brewing. District Georgia and the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild have a joint symposium November 6th in Atlanta. District Great Plains, District St. Louis, and the Missouri Craft Brewers Guild are holding a joint meeting November 10th and 11th in Springfield. Alpha Brewing will host the District St. Louis Shop Talk November 13th. District Northern California's Fall Technical Meeting is November 15th at Sudwork. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Haven't joined Master Brewers? Now's the time. Just for listening to the Master Brewers podcast, become a member for $123 for the year. Head over to mbaa.com and use code BEER2023 when you join. back to the show. Let's hear more about the mutants that were uncovered during this study. Uh, What kind of superpowers did they have? So once we had these um, mutants that we'd discovered, we wanted to see if we could find some reason that they took over in the brewery because going from undetectable at the beginning to 40% of the population when you have these huge fermenters and only a small number of generations is actually really amazing. (laughs) So they have to be really good at something and we wanted to know what they were really good at. So we started trying to think of what are all of the environments and stresses that the yeast have to undergo and could we start testing those individually in the lab 
lab and seeing if we could figure out what kind of new superpowers these strains had. So in order to do that, what we did was we isolated individual clones that had the mutations. So before on the sequencing, we'd done this whole population that was all mixed together. So in this case, what we did was we pulled out single cells and made sure they had some of the mutations we were interested in and then started growing them in the lab. And so a few of the things we tried were um, we thought maybe they were more cold tolerant because... Um, Tom puts these strains in the cold room between batches, so we thought maybe they were having some advantage while they were hanging out waiting for their next fermentation. We didn't find any traits related to cold tolerance, although um, you know we might look a little bit harder for that later. Um, another one that was a good possibility was flocculation. How they settle into the cone would determine who gets brought over to the next batch. And so um, there are a few laboratory tests, and this is actually um, a trait that my lab had worked on before. So we already had some of these protocols already established in the lab. So we compared them in terms of their flocculation properties. Again, we didn't find any differences there, but of course we don't have a you know giant fermenter to try this out in. So it is still possible that they have um, some sort of difference in Tom's fermenters that we weren't able to capture in the lab. Um, it could also be that they just grow faster. So to do that, we just made, we made, we call it science beer, where we've figured out a way to make sterile wort in the lab that's pretty reproducible so that we can um, test things over and over again. And uh, sure enough, the, uh, the strains collected from the end of the repitching time series did grow faster than the original strain did. So we think that that could be one component of why they're able to take over um, by the end. Uh, the other trait that we did find a difference in is ethanol resistance. And so if we grow the strains in higher concentrations of ethanol, then we found that the um, the final strains with the mutations did grow a little bit better than the starting strain did um, in about 7.5% ethanol. They don't make more ethanol. Um, we tested that by actually making beer with the strains and then sending it off to white labs for analysis. And the, the actual concentration of ethanol that they produced was about the same. Tom also made beer with our strains that we sent him. And so we tested those as well and, and got some of the same results. Nice. Okay, well, you know, one thing I wanted to bring up is that the, the cereal repitches you studied took place in, in a commercial brewery across you know, a dozen different beer styles. So that yeast was repitched into a different environment each fermentation cycle. I'm sure you're curious as to what extent the varying stresses of those different environments affect mutation. Oh, that's a really great point. Um, if we could find breweries that repitch through the same beer over and over and over again, instead of kind of being an all-purpose strain, then, you know, we could try to do that experiment where we could, we could maybe find an all IPA route and an all stout route and see how, how they change in different ways. Um, that's easier said than done. If anyone out there listening knows of breweries like this, please put me in touch with them because we would love to see if they'll collect samples for us. Um, well, Tom, well, you know, yeah. it was actually quite a coincidence because uh, about an hour after I emailed you an invitation to appear on the show, a post from Christopher Large, who's a PhD oh, yeah. student in your lab, came through on Ask the Brewmasters at community.mba.com, and he was soliciting commercial brewers to participate in your research. So are, are you still, sounds like you're still looking for more breweries to get involved. Do you want me to post a link to Christopher's post in the show notes here? 
That would be fantastic. And we have gotten great responses from several other breweries. And so we're in the process of beginning to collect samples from them and see what what people have for us. Um, I've been really thrilled at how willing people are to share things with us. And we have two asks. One is for other breweries that are doing cereal repitching. But the other is that um, one of the interesting things that we noticed about the um, strains was that it seems like a pre-existing mutation in the strain went away and not all Chico strains turn out to have that, that mutation. So now we've gotten really interested in how did all the Chico strains evolve as they got passed around from different breweries. So we're trying to collect everybody's house version of the Chico strain and we've collected a, a whole bunch of different ones and we're trying to kind of understand what happened in in the past um, as these strains got passed around and then also what happens in the future as they get repitched in individual breweries. That's cool. I mean, I, I can attest without, you know, doing any kind of, uh, you know, research on it, but just having brewed beer in a lot of different breweries over a lot of different years and using uh, American ale yeast, you know, Chico strains from lots of different suppliers, um, you know, th- they're not all the same for sure. You know? <laughs> oh, absolutely uh, not. Yeah. So we already have genome sequence from Y yeast 1056 and White Labs 001. And they have some of these same types of differences that we saw during the repitching. They have extra chromosomes. They have chromosome rearrangements on some of the arms. So they're already reasonably different from each other in interesting ways. And, you know, there are a few reports of people doing head-to-head comparisons and not seeing a lot of flavor differences from these, but there are some reports of some behavioral differences. So, um, I don't know. So, one reason that we wanted to look at the repitching is because it's a smaller number of mutations that happen over that short period of time, whereas there's quite a large number of mutations that have happened between 1056 and 001. So figuring out which one of those mutations or multiple of those mutations are responsible for anything is really hard. That's cool. Uh, so that, that um, post that, uh, um, that uh, Christopher put out was back in October. So I'm, I'm sure you've repeated the, that study, you know, uh, quite a bit since then. Uh, did you get the same mutations when you've repeated the study or has it been, you know, for pretty different each time? So Tom is currently in the middle of our repeat. It's going really well, and it's a particularly <laughs> long time course, which is really exciting. Maybe Tom could talk more about that. Yeah, let's hear about it. Um, well, obviously, I don't know any of the results. We're just, um, you know, doing the same thing we did before, repitching from batch to batch to batch as we go. Um, you know, it, it takes us a pretty long time to get out to 30 repitches because we're, you know, dividing as we go. Um, and also, we this is not the only yeast strain that we use. Uh, so, you know, we have many other many other batches going uh, with different yeasts. And we've actually started to use um, uh, the A38 strain from Imperial uh, Organic Yeast uh, quite a bit. And so that is also, as we're repitching those, we're sanding samples to Maitreya's lab. Um, so you know the, it's it's basically a repeat of the previous experiment in terms of a uh, variety of styles and and pitched again and again um we just you know don't have all the results yet we're still using it cool how far along are you um let me check here real quick he's like i don't know i just put yeast in a jar and send it to her <laughs> <laughs> we um 
the last sample that we delivered was repitch 29 um and so that's obviously going to lag behind where we are so uh that was in the bond so we're probably at at uh 31 at this point nice wow I have to say one of the great things about working with Tom is that he does keep remarkably good notes. And also I have the feeling he has pretty good technique (laughs) with his background in science. And so that could be one of the secrets to his success with this uh, long-term repitching. Because we talked about how mutations are one thing to worry about when you repitch. But of course, the other things to worry about are that you introduce contamination or that the yeast physiology starts to suffer. That's right. And I guess, Tom, you're in good shape because you got someone who can tell you if you ever have any cross-contamination. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, <laughs> oh, we yeah, test you... our tanks every week anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah, you can't hide yeah. from the sequencer, though. That's true. That's right. That's right. <laughs> cool. Well, this is very interesting stuff. Um, I didn't ask that many questions. Is there other stuff that either of you want to talk about that um, I didn't ask about? Oh, let's see. Um... Did you want to talk a little bit about the beers that Tom made that we brought to HomebrewCon for tasting? Yeah, why not? That was kind of fun. So um, Tom actually, so we made science beer with the strain. Is that, is that where you, you <laughs> gave this? Is that where this presentation is from? Or no? Yes, okay. that's right. It's from I don't Homebrew. even know where it's from. Somebody sent it to me. It's like, yeah, hey, you ought to oh, do how this. Funny. And I was like, oh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't know that they kept the slides like this and, and posted them. I knew they were posting the talk online, but um, yeah. Um, I'm glad I did a good job on the slides. It's kind of funny. There's some <laughs> things missing. I'm looking through it. It's the I'm internet. Like, <laughs> everything lives forever. You have to be yeah, careful. Right. Well, I'm just <laughs> yeah. wondering. Uh, so far, everything has held up from a few months ago, which is good. Um, but um, let's see. So one thing that was great fun was that Tom actually made beer with the um, the two mutant strains that we isolated with one with the extra chromosome five and one with the chromosome rearrangement and also with the starting strain. And then we brought them to homebrew con and had a whole room full of homebrewers do sensory analysis for us, uh, which is great. And so they were all like instantly, I had 200 new collaborators, right? And we are still in the process of um, analyzing all of that data, but, uh, does look like we saw some um, some differences that were measurable um, by all of the the brewer tasters. So um, we got some differences on the um, the ester score and the sweetness score and the hop score. One of the beers in particular um, scored a little bit higher than the other two in in all three of those areas. And um, we are again not entirely sure what's causing those differences, but they do agree to some degree with some of the metabolite analysis that we had done where we saw uh, different concentrations uh, of um, some of these um, small metabolites that can, can change the flavor. And Tom did some tasting too and said he could tell the difference. So I trust his palate. Yeah. When we did the, uh, the taste test at the brewery before the homebrewers conference, we, um, there were clear differences between them and we did those tastings blind. Um, but it was, it was very obvious, uh, the different strains, uh, and it was, I mean, they were so distinct that when we were at the homebrewers conference and I tasted them during the, the talk, I could immediately pick out which was which, uh, they were, they were very different from each other. Um, but the, the thing to keep in mind with those is that, um, you know, the final, yeast that we had where we decided to to end the time course was 40%, let's say one strain, 40% another strain, and then 20% 
unknown really could be a mix of other strains right certainly not a monoculture um but when we made these beers we made one beer with one of the 40 percents and one beer with another of the 40 percents and then nothing with that 20 percent of who knows what that is um so really we're isolating the different mutations and brewing beer with them uh and then tasting them to see what the differences are. So those differences, um, you know, when, when it came time to, when we're talking about the beers that we were making with that, you know, right before the time course ended, um, maybe those differences cancel each other out. Uh, it's possible that, you know, conditions here are not quite the same as um, the beers that we made for the conference, you know, were fermented in carboys, homebrew style. I mean, we made a, a 15 barrel batch of the, of the base beer um, because, you know, it, it was a good style to test this out with. And we were going to, you know, brew a batch of, uh, of pale ale um, anyway. So we took this pale ale where and fermented it with these different strains. But they, like I said, they were in carboys. They weren't as controlled as they are in our normal fermenters. Uh, we're not able to, you know, do a reliable diacetyl rest uh, with that equipment as compared to our normal equipment. Uh, and so, you know, there's some things that uh, I think came across in those, let's call them homebrewed batches of beer that you wouldn't see in the beers that we normally produce. We've heard a lot about sort of the population that you started with in the mutants that we ended up with at the end of a whole bunch of cereal repitching, but what happened in the middle? So uh, in addition to the final time point, we also sequenced some of the time points along the way. And that let us see what was happening in between going from the mutants being undetectable to being at about 40% of the population. So um, we were able to start detecting the presence of these mutants by about 10 to 15 repitches. So what's interesting is that that mostly agrees with that kind of rule of thumb, right? That 10 repitches is about what you can get away with. Um, and uh, that seems to be kind of when these things start to have enough um, presence in the population to make themselves known. Uh, we are looking to see in the replicate if we get that same result again, or if it ends up being a little earlier or later. I assume you didn't sequence, you know, every cycle just because that would have been way too much work, right? Yeah, we didn't know when things might happen. And in fact, you know, it's still pretty amazing to me that, that we have so much of the population that's a mutant by the end, um, because it really is a pretty small number of generations in the grand scheme of things. Like in my lab, when we do laboratory evolution experiments, we will often do hundreds of generations. So although we have much, much smaller cultures <laughs> than the fermenters. Hmm. That's cool. And, and I suppose, um, you know, if you end up finding that there's a, a really interesting mutation, you would be able to drill down further and, and go back in sequence to figure out exactly when that happened, right? Absolutely. So we still have all the freezers, all the samples in the freezer. It's kind of like a little fossil record of all of Tom's brewing activity for the, yeah. <laughs> that six months. So we can, that's what we kind of started with was the sparse sampling first. And then once we figured out where things were happening, then we could go and do more samples in that area if we needed to. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't Always, need to do whole genome sequencing on those just to find, you know, if you're just trying to track back to see where a single mutation happened. Right. Right. Okay. 
Right. There are also cheaper methods to go and track down individual mutations. So like, let's say we found a single base change that we got really interested in. We could use other methods of detecting that that are actually a lot more sensitive than whole genome sequencing, where you could figure out like, is this at, you know, less than 1% population frequency? Whereas with the whole genome sequencing, we're really looking more on the order of 10%. That was Maitreya Dunham and Tom Schmidlin here on the Master Brewers podcast. Don't forget to check out Chris Large's post on Ask the Brewmasters if you'd like to participate in this study. I'll post a link in the show notes, or you can just type large into the search bar at community.mbaa.com. See, I'm glad you brought up Chris because I do want to emphasize that Chris Large in my lab is the one who's done all of the sequencing work on this. And uh, Noah Hansen, a tech in my lab who got his start in microbiology as a home brewer, is the one who came up with our science beer recipe and has also been um, doing a lot of the helping with the sequencing work on this. So I definitely want to make sure both of them get acknowledged. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support.